Good morning, people of the internet. You're listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the excellent movie, Gross Point Blank, one minute at a time. I'm Dev. And I'm Hugh, and on today's show, we are going to be looking at Minute 13, the arrival on screen of Alan Arkin. Joining us on today's show, we once again have David Forsyth. Welcome back, David. Thank you very much. So here we are with, uh, we said last episode that the previous minute ended on Cusack's character, Martin Q. Blank, facing the camera, almost feeling like he's breaking the fourth wall, talking to what we then later to realize is his, uh, did we say psychologist or psychiatrist? Because the distinction is important, isn't it? That is a fair point, And I don't think we've really hammered that out. But I think this is his psychologist, right? Okay. I would assume, yeah. Right. Um, so he's talking to his psychologist, and but we don't see the psychologist. We don't see him. Every the the, the camera rests on Cusack's face, and yeah. we are spoken to. It feels like. Yes, and I think it's um, it very much does feel like a a a, a, um, a piece where he's talking to the audience, and he's talking about being unable to relate to these people that he went to high school with. Or with anyone, really, which is um, a little unnerving, potentially, but also just a little bit lonely and sad for mm. for somebody to not be able to relate to anybody uh, or, and or to feel like they're unable to. I think it, it does a great job of, you know, we've seen him object to this reunion, I, I think, a couple times strongly so far um and now it's sort of starting to lay out why he's objecting to it right i mean for the other reason for the reasons other than like you know 10-year high school reunions are just anxiety inducing for a lot of people right um but then it also kind of gets into like you said his general ennui of of uh of just life right like yeah. he, he's <laughs> and alan arkin's gonna do a, a good job of, of sort of like laying out the like very obvious reasons and statements for it but like is this why you're a contract killer is this because you're a contract killer you know like one of these two types of things that that uh, is is very clearly weighing on you in some way or you know vice versa but um yeah it's it like you said it is a little unnerving it, it it's sad for a regular person it's unnerving when you realize it's a person who could be coming to kill you right yeah <laughs> yes and and it's done in a way to uh, like exaggerate that as well right this is mm. 30 seconds of the camera just statically facing down martin blank and and martin blank just talking at this camera and you know in a 100 plus minute movie 110 minute movie whatever it is that's not a long chunk of the movie but in a scene yeah. you know camera shots that long are fairly uncommon and it, you kind of feel it, especially once again, as, as we're watching this kind of one minute at a time and we're maybe hammering into it a little bit more than the average viewer. But that 30 seconds really does start to feel like quite a long time. I also feel like it's something more traditionally Cusack in the mm -hmm. sense of the kind of roles we're used to having him in. And in that sense, it's ever so slightly reassuring for the audience after everything we've seen you know he seems to be kind of between the office scene and this he's much more relatable mm. um 
until, yeah. as you say, the thirty seconds are up. <laughs> right. <laughs> and 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 it ends, you know, predictably on sort of a slight threat. Right. That that uh, I just think it would be depressing. I said I, I said it would be depressing, and and you know, requiring that engagement from yeah. from the other party. But I also I'm not sure I agree that like at this point in his career is this something we expect of John Cusack because I know it it becomes a hallmark of him but I think that's mostly from films he's done subsequent to this I, I don't mean the I don't mean speaking to the audience I just meant that whole sort of seated monologuing yeah you know, yeah 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 no I, I, again I, okay I you feel that that's the, not a thing okay well I, I can't think of what he's done before this film at the time it was released that would have had that because I mean you know a lot of his early stuff he's not a super big part of it um I think the the say anything bits where he's speaking to um oh yeah mm -hmm. oh gosh I don't remember who the father was in in that movie off the top of my head that was uh Mm. I can picture him I know he was in Frasier anyway um but uh yeah Yeah. it'll come to me as soon as we sign off here but um there's moments where he's sort of like explaining himself as a flawed person at sort of like he's doing here that I think is, is similar. Um, yeah. 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 I, would, I, I, would think, he has, I, think, I think he has an actual of, of John Mahoney. That's who we're thinking of. John Mahoney. Oh yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I know I always felt from that era, I think of, of, of that, uh, uh, the actors of that era, I always felt like he was the one who was more uh, open to revealing that level of characterization. I think, you know, I felt like I, I feel like there was a generation like on either side of him. There's a generation of young male uh, performers who are who, for whom introspection is overly romanticized. And it comes with it comes sort of either hand in hand with macho outbursts or it's, you know, subsumed in a kind of De Niro-esque manner until they can you know, bring it to the fore and then as the plot demands. Whereas Cusack, or, or for me, has always been this more more natural about it in the way he portrays his characters. The, these these moments come from him in a way that is both comedic and relatable and and quite human. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of Chandler Bing before Chandler Bing, but you know, not but bet more than that. You know, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't think. It's it's weird. He's going to be one of those actors who eventually, when he passes on, it's going to feel weird not having him around, even if he's no longer in the in the the, the mainstream eye on a regular basis. You know, I just feel yeah. like he's always, well, for my life at least, it feels like he's always been with us. He's always around. Um, but yeah, I do worry sometimes that oh God, I can't even remember what the last thing I saw him was in, but. The variety of what we used to expect from him has certainly not been something he's been offered the vehicles for or produced for a while. Yeah, um, which is a shame. I keep thinking maybe I don't know. I, I wonder if there was uh, actors get type typecast in so many ways, but I do sometimes wonder if uh, the one-two hit of Gross Point Blank and um, High Fidelity kind of created through his own productions unexpectedly created his kind of um not stereotype but you know the 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 kind of public persona 
that he's lent into since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some. I, so the more we do this podcast, the more I think of all these things I'd like to see him do that I haven't seen him do. <laughs> I'd like him to like like here we are, thirty seconds into his talk with his uh, psycho- psychologist, and we get a cut to the psychologist, and of course, it's the great Alan Arkin. Um, yeah. But it's the fact that he's head down almost static tableau of just like, oh my God. Um, I'd love to see Cusack do that now. He's older. I'd like to see him be that guy now, you know, for example. Yeah. Um, could he Could he take the uh, the Billy Crystal bits from Analyze That, which we were talking about last time? Oh, like, he'd be good be, at that. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't see him pulling off that, that degree of comedy. Mm. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, Billy Crystal is a hard hard person to compete with it's true i mean it, yeah. it's it, the, the the hot tub time machine stuff i think was probably his most recent yeah. like big stuff that i can think of and even though those were comedies he still plays the more sincere character of that yes you yeah. know the, the with strong nostalgia attachments as well um yeah. which yeah i mean now that i think about that that's a bit of a hallmark of his career as well like a recent uh, recent since the 90s <laughs> career i guess there's been a lot of like backward looking to his characters for sure yeah yeah did, i mean did anyone sorry go on Dev. I, w- I was gonna say obviously um runaway jury was another one that he was very prominent in yeah mm-hmm. that was a big um, one yeah. but that was still 20 years ago now um, yeah i mean i did see him in something very low budget a while back and it was it was not good uh, but yeah, he was great. A couple he was horror great, movies, right? Uh, not the horror one. It was this was a low budget actioner, um, okay. and I'm not even sure. I mean, I'm just assuming he took it because he needed the job at the time because it was really nothing special as a film. But he himself was still him. You know, he did his thing, yeah. and so there was sincerity within his. I think he was playing a spy and having to, you know, run into someone who's not a spy and. Protect them from whatever usual sort of stuff, but it was very, very low budget. Um, but I mean, I the thing I, I suddenly realized I'm just looking at his IMDb and I realized I have because I haven't got around to watching the American remake of Utopia, uh, which got cancelled. Uh, so but two seasons here in the UK, Channel 4 got cancelled and then they made they, they adapted it in the States and it got cancelled there. But he plays the lead one of the lead, the lead adult role in that, and I suddenly realized that is exactly the sort of thing I'm talking about I'd like to see him do. So I might have to track that down, even though it's unfinished, you know? Because yeah. um, uh, these days, of course, that's where the really interesting roles often are sometimes is television. Uh, yeah, and it, I don't feel like it's got the same stigma that it used to for uh, for movie mm. actors. You know, yeah, the, I think there's a little more fluidity back and forth for sure yeah. with mm. your prestige television yeah. shows or whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I mean, but we should be well, talking more about Alan Arkin because we we've got should. a whole movie of John Cusack True. and depressing <laughs> a few minutes of Alan Arkin to talk about. So <laughs> one of the greats, yes. Sadly, uh, only passed away this year. Yeah, yeah. Right. It was June, wasn't it? God, it was not that long ago. Crikey, what a career! Just just 110 credits as an actor. You know, astonishing. He's... He's really doing one of the things I identify best with him in this role is that he's quietly annoyed 
right? <laughs> like that's, I think one of his great strengths, like if you think about the, the big loud personalities in like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, when, yeah. where he was the quiet guy, yep. but no less peeved and annoyed than anyone else. Like you almost worry more about him yeah. <laughs> because he's, you know, it's always the quiet ones or whatever, but, but, it, but in here he's, he's doing that sort of, um, you know, keeping his psychiatric or psychologic or whatever we decided that was um, his uh, professionalism uh, on top of clearly very annoyed, sometimes worried. Uh, and, and he, he, he does it to a T here. It's like the most believable thing <laughs> in this movie that has a lot of, um, it's not magical realism, but it, it's sort of like, it, it's a, it's sort of an alternate world. It's like a, a toned down John Wick almost, right? Like yeah. this, this yeah. world where we're, we're living amongst uh, a sea of, of trained killers and, and the, 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 you know, life, uh, that, that they lead under, underneath our, our regular everyday life. But yeah. What, 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 uh, do you have a, a favorite role of his from his long career, David? Oh, gosh. What was the one where um, I cannot remember the name of it? Um, oh, man. Uh, where he's like the father of the, the, the family in LA that has to keep moving around um, uh, with the. Uh, oh, man. I can't remember the name of anybody right now. No, um, don't worry. Neither can I. <laughs> Marissa, Marissa Tomei's in it. Um, yeah. Tasha Leone's in it. Is it? Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. It's, I think it's it's like L.A. something. I think is the name of it. But um, uh, it's not Slums of Beverly Hills, is it? Slums of Beverly Hills. That's what it is. Yep. Nineteen ninety-eight. God, I haven't yeah, thought about that. That, that one's really wow, good. What a cast. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've I, I, at all. Definitely something different. Um, not sure they would they make that kind of thing today. I don't know. Um, yeah. No. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Gattaca, yeah. I remember him from, uh, which yeah. is shortly yeah. after this. Um, but recently, I was watching the Blu-ray of the Seven Percent Solution, and he plays Freud in that to Sherlock Holmes. Oh, wow. <laughs> worth going back to. Uh, definitely, lot, I yeah, haven't, a lot of I haven't fun seen that. One. Yeah, no, worth, definitely worth going back to. And as you say, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and the Rocketeer yeah. here is in as well. I love the Rocketeer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I think also need to call out Argo because my wife will kill yeah. me if I don't call out Argo at every opportunity to call out Argo because it's Argo. Um, but uh, wait a minute, yeah. that's that's not a Hallmark movie. <laughs> I'm I'm so for the sake of your health, I'm so glad I'm wearing headphones right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> what fascinates me about Argo is I heard of it. This is the story it's based on. I heard of it years ago because the CIA agent in question, who is the advisor on the film, I mean, he's passed away now, but yep. he was, um, he did one of these uh, Errol Morris uh, talking to camera documentaries where Morris had a whole bunch of short films he did for one of the cable channels because he had subjects that weren't, he didn't think could make a full hour and a half, right? So yep. he did a series of half hour or hour long interviews with various characters and this guy uh was in i'm trying to remember his name because i've actually got his bio somewhere but um mm. he but what fascinates me is how this guy is linked to the arc of spy fiction in hollywood because this is the guy who first used i'm going all the way back to the 60s uh who first suggested that they use a um 
a full theatrical face mask on an agent having to go through a, a, a checkpoint at night mm-hmm. so that he could get past, which of course is, becomes the fundamental piece yeah. of Mission Impossible, yeah. right? Yeah. And apparently the original story was that they had a uh, they had two agents in a car in Vietnam who were going to have to go through uh, a checkpoint, and one was white and one was black. And they knew that because he was black, that was going to set off the alarm bells with the Viet Cong. So what they did was they suggested, well, it's dark. He's not going to have to say anything. So how about we just put this mask on him, right? And it worked. <laughs> and and that's where the story came from, that, that C- you know, the CIA would use masks that were so well-fitting and convincing. And, of course, it wasn't. It was just slapped on him and glued with makeup quickly and all the rest <laughs> of it. But I love that this guy's been you know at the heart of all of these of so much creativity interesting ideas so yeah no argo is, is is one of the more the very interesting film recent sort of film versions of this sort of thing was that tony mendez yes yeah fascinating yeah. guy uh, i've yeah. still got the dvd of the documentary somewhere um absolutely fascinating guy his bio is 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 equally good if you can't get the documentary the biography his biography is well worth a read just fascinating absolutely fascinating because you're putting people's lives you know in the hands of something that yeah. simple i guess yeah i mean the risk but they did it you know but now we take yeah. that as a staple of spy fiction which is what always happens right you know it's it's like the the james bond gadgets or whatever you know a lot mm-hmm. of those were actually things that were were tried and yeah. used and and they yeah. turn into gimmicks well for, yeah elsa krebs uh the, the 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 dagger and the poison dagger in the boot yep. is uh is is something that was uh, drew from reality um and the 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 poison umbrella was yep. used by both sides uh, at one point um yeah no i do i do think that's the kind of thing i find interesting about uh gross point blank you know is 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 this whole business of him being because we we discussed early on the 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 business of him and grosser being two different types of assassin and having two different types of uh emotional responses to what they do and how they go about doing it. Um, but as you said, David, this particular film is verging on, you know, it's, it's a fantasy of a kind, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. this sense of, as you say, it's, it's John, 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 Wick, you know, pro, proto John Wick, you know, um, yeah. and, and as part of that, I find it interesting when we all get the real world stuff, like, you know, like the Argo, like you're talking about Argo and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, here we've got the, uh, the, the various, jobs places weapons used and the references to real life real, real world events and things that just anchor it and it anchors that fantasy and prevents it from flying off completely into total unreality well at least it does until it becomes until the rom-com elements enter yeah. and 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 that's part of the fun of the film is 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 how unhinged it starts to really become although <laughs> The killing of the president of Paraguay with a fog in this is hysterical. That's hysterical. <laughs> yeah, you, I just you... want to see that. It's like this is one of those things we were talking about the flashback moments, right? Like, right. If this were done nowadays, they'd feel the need to insert the flashback, mm. right? Yeah. Same with the T thirty fours and and Burma. Like, yeah. you'd, you'd see that sequence happen. And yeah. I'm it, for me, for my imagination, I'm so glad that it didn't. Oh. Didn't have the money for it, did they? <laughs> also, it, probably a uh, so much of what makes this film work is the lack of money. It's that creativity, mm-hmm. you know. You don't have it's the money. It's not to the shark. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all in the actors' faces. Uh, well, and the yeah. the 
the bit where he's running the poison down the wire, like I felt like that was, I mean, that's sort of a redo of a, a 007 bit. I forget from which one, but there you go. They, they do it with close-ups on the gadget on the details of like what kind of wire you know he's showing the scope that he's using and showing the syringe that he's using i think that really grounds the realism and that's frankly the the trickiest any of this gets everything else is like kind of run and gun stuff or like c4 in a microwave or whatever but um you know like it, it it all feels very real in terms of you know assassins could accomplish this easily today with just a little bit of subterfuge is, is really all they need and yeah. and uh you know lack of scruples or whatnot but hmm. yeah yeah that makes anyway. sense so back to arkin then arkin <laughs> the man who just as you said exasperation but mild controlled and of course we we get some dialogue before the minute is up from him yeah. as well just um, and I think that 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 that's really really interesting because this is now we were discussing Marcella and the the power dynamic and the way she attempts to uh, communicate with Martin in ways that can be uh, that can either push him to do certain things or have to be careful. And now we're seeing that similar dynamic now, but with the, an older male figure and. Again, and, and now it's much more tense now, you know. And once again, we've got blinds on the window and the lights. And, and again, we're talking about offices, and this seems, you know, you've got the mm. potted plant, and, and this seems much more. I think you actually said in, in an earlier episode, uh, David or Dev, one of you said that this, you know, the, the, the Martin's office could be, would be more likely to be, you know, a psychiatrist's office or something. And then, then yeah. here we are, you know, and they're not completely dissimilar. There are links. It's almost like he's gone. Round, round the corner or just down the corridor, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, I would not be same, surprised. Yeah, the same style, but more lived in. You yeah, can tell um, this is an office that's used. It's got living plants. It's got yeah. comfortable furnishings. It's yeah. not just as as they rented it. Yeah, um, the, the things on the desk look like things that Arkin's Ar- character picked. You know, that's his yeah. pen because he likes to write with that sort of pen, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but but it really would not surprise me if he literally went out the door, turned a corner, corner to a corridor, and went into another door. You know, I would I would not be surprised. You know, just because of that. But yes, the the the, he, he, the way he is so matter of fact in speaking to Martin is as if he's trying to, you know, just be careful. I I, I want to explode at you, but I can't because if you yeah. explode, I'm in real trouble. Yeah, and and the whole gag of that sort of belies the the relationship a little bit because we talked about him sort of looking for this father figure maybe or mm-hmm. or having that sort of relationship but it it's not reciprocal right like oh, he, <laughs> it's revealed here that that uh the doctor dr oatman alan arkin is not his psychiatrist his psychologist right like he's like i'm refusing to see you you know like i yeah. is, we're, we're not doing this but they are and that that he's wanting that father relationship, that advice, that someone to bounce his feelings off of and help him to, to work through the process as he'll state later, but he's doing it in a hostage scenario, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, yeah. so, I mean, that, that's sort of the, the big gag of all this, I think. And uh, and you feel like this is the com- the same conversation that's had every single week, every week, every yeah. week mm-hmm. that he comes. It's yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I'm, I just can you imagine the run up to that when you know this guy's going to be turning up? Yeah, well, and the uh, the fact that he keeps that hour free every week too, right? Like he, no one else is scheduled in that block because he knows, yeah. you know, that that Martin Blank might just show up and he, he doesn't want to put other patients at risk or exactly. you know refuse him in any way. Yeah, so it, it's yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can almost see the decanter of whiskey that he goes to every week <laughs> yeah. after this session yeah. ends, right? Yeah, I, I do. I, yeah, I, I mean, I do wonder also if, like, he's wondering that if someone was booked there, Martin would just shoot him, <laughs> get him out of the seat, and sit down. <laughs> well, you sure can only that... imagine that at some point, like the first week after he cancels these sessions, he did have somebody else booked in, right? And Martin still yeah. showed up, and yeah, how that must have gone, right? <laughs> Scary. Is he deliberately putting him in that very low chair as well? Like the, yeah. there's a weird physical layout too, because they're they're sitting in a very not typical psychologist setup, right? It's yeah. Arkin's behind a desk, a big desk, yeah. and uh, Martin's in a chair facing him, but it's a very low chair. He's almost squatting. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, there's the, the couch is in the background, so clearly yeah. they have the facilities to do that sort of typical, you know lay on my couch and tell me about your cigars um sort of setup but yeah it's uh yeah. yeah yeah and i i mean you get the impression that you know he keeps trying to hope that this this session doesn't happen so he sat at his desk doing some work <laughs> and martin comes in and martin probably just sits himself down at the chair that's facing the desk right and and is probably not apologetic or you know in any way um deferential in in any of what he's doing here um yeah it, it also reminds me a little bit of the prisoner, those low sixties chairs. As oh well. yeah. And, you yeah. Know, and yeah. with his suit and everything, it does feel, yeah, it's just a little odd. Uh, you know what? We, There's more than a little Patrick McGowan about John Cusack. I've got to oh, say, I never, this, I never sure. tweaked it before, but you're right. No, yeah. This is number two speaking with, um, number six it does there's a touch of that i don't think i don't i doubt it's intentional i mean i'm pretty sure that's just me you know visualizing it but i mean i feel like john cusack's love of punk he could have stumbled into the prisoner sure yeah um yes because there was a big there was a big thing in the 80s where jules holland and stephen fry did a whole prisoner parody in the last episode of whatever the big tv show was over here with it which broadcast live performances the tube that was it um yeah. when they knew they're being taken off air because of all the swearing from various punks and, <laughs> and people and whatnot they they decided to just go all out and they used the budget to make a parody of the prisoner and that was it and that, that went out i mean that got aired i'll never understand so it would not surprise me if that yeah that's a good point actually there was there was yeah. some renewed interest in it in, in the punk era um, <clears throat> I think, and yeah, there's something about McGowan's character characterizations of, you know, men yeah. of violence under pressure and looking to for their own way out, wanting to be um, individuals and free. Yeah, mm. David, that... have you seen The Prisoner? Yeah, yeah, it okay. was uh, like when the DVD era first kicked off. It was something I deliberately sought out because I had known about it from some source. I think when I when I was younger, someone had made a reference to it and then sort of made me feel uncool for not having seen it. Mm. So it sat in my imagination for a long time. Um, and yeah. then, and then I finally was able to, to see it at, at some point, but yeah, it was, it was a specter longer than it was a, a 
longer than it took me to watch it for sure so. yeah absolutely i think uh for for listeners who are not familiar with this it's a british uh tv series uh that was written directed and starred in the leading role a british actor called patrick mcguin who was previously famous for another tv series called danger man which was kind of just like a low budget james bond series where he was a, a secret agent and the prisoner is somewhat reminiscent of a a sequel to that in that the opening episode he resigns his position as this secret agent uh he goes home goes to bed uh wakes up and weirdness ensues in a way that has lit the imagination of writers in hollywood for 30 40 years at this point you will see references to it in the simpsons in pretty much everything um but uh it was a cult classic in the UK. I've, I've not encountered many Americans that have seen it, although some have seen the remake that was done with uh, Syrian McKellen. It was based in like a desert in Arizona or something. Um, I have not seen Mexico. that. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, but it is very, very influential on on subsequent uh, shows and movies of all sorts. I, I think it, well I would argue watching. it's. Yeah, I mean, it's part. The influence is as much for what it doesn't do as what it does do, because mm. it was conceived as a sequel, as you say, to Danger Man. John Drake was meant to be. You know, this is the, the number number six is meant to be Drake and stylized like Drake and dresses in a similar way in the beginning. But uh, George Markstein, who was the producer and, and co-creator of it and had worked on um, on Danger Man, was was. We, I mean, we, it was rumored, but we now know since his passing that he was actually Secret Service, and he, and one of the things he did when he left was start writing for TV shows because Spy Fi, Spy Fi was big and it was perfectly, it fitted in perfectly. But he always wanted it more grounded, and and as did McGowan, hence why the the popularity of Danger Man was the fact again that because it was a, a t- television series with not a huge budget it was able they had to be creative and think care and, and they'd have to the, the the writing and the acting had to take precedent over the gadgetry and the action mm. um and 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 so the prisoner was conceived as a sequel and then the conflict grew between mark steen and and, and McGowan. and eventually he fired mark steen and then decided and that that put that's the point where the show goes berserk you know, season one still has some sort of one foot in reality. Yeah. Season two is just no, it's bonkers. Do whatever we feel like. Oh, we yeah, want yeah. to do a fable as a western. Let's do that now. Kids' fable as a western. Hey, you want to do that? Yeah, let's do that. You know, just anything. Um, and the ending is, I mean, just insane. But the fact that I think the big part of what the success of the prison was the lack of the ability of people to see it again. You know, I knew sure. people at university when VHS was in, but we'd only had a few. There'd only been one repeat of the TV show on British TV in four, in twenty years, and I remember people at university who were old enough to have seen it, to, you know, speaking to me in like kind of hushed tones in the pub about that last episode and yep. remember the scenes and half remembered moments, and that's a hell of an impact yep. to have on uh, people who are uh, who are interested in things that are not the norm and are outside the the, the mainstream um and, and as you say dev it's not just uh the audience it's also as you say creatives influenced by it yeah. you know if people looked at that and went well if they can do that what can we do where else can we go with these ideas 
Um, and I think I, th- I do think it's a big part of why Bond felt free to get more surreal. Hmm. Mm, um, you know, not least because you know, not least because when they when they decided to move to a TV actor instead of the uh, a screen, you know, a, a theater, a, a movie actor. You know, when they brought in Roger Moore, it was, yeah, he was huge on television. Same producers, mm. huge in you know, first Ivanhoe and then the Saint. And um, yeah, I think I think uh, this again coming back to Gross Point Blank, it feels like Arkin feels like an interesting link back to that era of film and TV. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting casting choice because you know there's a number of people you could have cast at that time in 1997 to play that sort of role. But he's a really great person, great face, great background, great you know sort of uh, history as an actor to to pick for for that role. Um, and 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 yes, but but also having him bald as well with the with the stereo and glasses, it's quite a. It's quite a, an interesting image, you know. It feels very fifties and sixties kind of spy fi. Yeah, you know, yeah, not it, quite Bond it, villain, but it definitely harkens back to sort of an older image of the psychologist as well, right? Yes. Like you, we we don't. I think we talked about this when we were talking to offices about how a modern psychologist office would be much more modern and open and airy and inviting and and whatnot. And this feels more claustrophobic. The fact that he's you know, in a suit at a desk, is it's a it's it's an interesting choice of, of portrayal because I think even at that time you wouldn't necessarily have thought of this stodgy. I mean, this is not your t- stereotypical view even at that time for a psychologist. I wouldn't think. But yeah, he if he feels relatively inaccessible, right? He's mm-hmm. not yeah. the the comfortable, easy person to speak to that you you kind of expect. Yeah. Um, so the uh, as we um, oh, hang on, maybe I might be skipping ahead here. I need to be careful. Sorry, uh, we were talking about the hostage situation um, again. There was something in the water in the nineties because I remember a hostage negotiation and uh, mm. that element of psychology, like forensics and serial killer thrillers, were big as well and. It just seems it's again. It's interesting the idea of the the, the the psychologist in the hostage situation because he's the guy you would expect to be talking people out of it and all that kind of thing. And and so again, it's kind of interesting that this script comes along and has this another thing that's in the water at the time. Um, yeah. Still, still not still not quite sure how. Uh, there are days when James Cameron has this thing about. People developing things at the same time in the same in, in the same in the same era, but completely separately without any interaction. And he calls it parallel evolution, which is not necessarily a thing that actually exists within evolutionary biology. But this notion, I think, from in a point of view of creativity or culture, cultural thinking, I think there's something to be said for this idea. But but also, I watched something like Ghost Point Blank, and I, and I think to myself you know again why why is everyone why why all these ideas coming together in the same way at the same time or in similar ways you know um yeah well we shall see more in the next uh in the next minute that was minute 13 of gross plant bank podcast debbie radio 79.5 fm featuring hosts co-writers co-producers dev saligar and you david today's guest was david forsyth david where can we find you uh, check out edgeoftomorrowminute.com or just edgeoftomorrowminute if you go to your 
podcatchers or Spotify's or whatever. Just 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 type it in. Look for a, a weird sort of anime-ish picture. That's us. Okay. And uh, I think you've also got a Facebook group as well, right? Yeah. Uh, it's got a funny name, and I never remember what it is. It's something like... Uh, uh, no, I don't remember. It... It, it, I'm, I'm sure it was funny. Oh no, I do remember. It's a uh, no jacket required. That's what it's called. Hey, uh, it's, yeah, the, it's because of the jackets. And the, anyway, but anytime you have to explain a joke, it's not a good one. So I'm, I'll try not to explain it. But you'll get it. Watch the movie and listen to Phil Collins. Uh, you can also find us on all good podcast players, as well as on YouTube, Twitter, aka X, and Spotify at debbie radio for all of those you can also visit our website uh, debbieradio.com and for all of those it is debbie spelt d-e-b-i radio or one word uh, and if you want to talk to us you can find us at facebook listener group debbie radio 79.5 fm fan club once again d-e-b-i radio thank you very much sure was clear that all of this was new concentrating hard like a little girl smoking for the first time it wasn't a moment it was a feeling